Welcome to the Collaborators Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me and my guests as we reflect on what it looks like to collaborate with Jesus for the flourishing of nonviolent Christianity right now in all the difficulty and promise of our present moment. When we collaborate with Jesus, we join a movement for the building up of communities that heal rather than wound, that unite instead of divide, and that create the possibility for love and mercy to define who we are. On this podcast, you will meet people who are part of this movement, and we will find them inside and outside church walls because the spirit cannot be constrained by human boundaries. We'll talk about our fears, doubts, and beliefs, wounds, and nagging questions, because when we are collaborating with Jesus, he wants all of us along for the journey. In fact, we believe that coming from a place of doubt is the best starting place to discover what God is doing in our midst right now during these challenging yet strangely hopeful times. I'm your host, Suzanne Ross, and in this episode, we'll be talking with award-winning novelist and filmmaker Kevin Miller. Over the past 25 years, Kevin has applied his craft to a wide range of projects, including feature films, documentaries, novels, nonfiction books, and comic books. I got to know Kevin when we presented him with the 2013 Raven Award for Excellence in Arts and Entertainment for his documentary, Hellbound. His new film, JES USA, was released in 2020 and was featured at this year's Collaborators Conference. Kevin uses the film to explore the relationship between Christianity and American nationalism and the violence that emerges from it. As you'll hear in the interview, Kevin is a deep thinker about what it means to not only proclaim a God of love and mercy, but to live a life of witness to that faith. The Collaborators Podcast is a production of the Raven Foundation, and this episode is brought to you by The Porch and the New Story Festival, two linked opportunities for stepping into a new story. Both are projects of Irish storyteller and violence reduction advocate Gareth Higgins and his collaborators. Linking slow conversation about beautiful and difficult things with online and in-person events, The Porch Magazine and the New Story Festival prepare us to play our part in building a more just, peaceful, and life-giving post-pandemic world. As Gareth reminds us, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Join the Porch and New Story Festival and discover communities seeking courageous action for the common good. Kevin, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's always great to hang out with you, Suzanne. Isn't it? I love it. <laughs> and you're joining us from your home in British Columbia, yes? Yeah, I'm in Kimberley, BC. I'm actually sitting out on my deck on a beautiful sunny day. We're in the midst of a heat wave right now. Yeah, it's August. Yeah. That'll happen. Yeah. Yes. Well, Kevin, you. I'm glad you could find a brief moment to be with us because you are a busy man. 
You have many gifts and talents, and you're always busy using them. So I'm wondering if you could just let us know, what are you working on like right now? What did you walk away from to come to the podcast? Well, I'm actually working on a novel. So I have a book series called the Milligan Creek series. It's a series of novels aimed at uh, middle grade readers. They're kind of fun adventure fiction, lots of humor, lots of kids getting themselves into trouble with authority figures, having to get themselves out of trouble. So I'm working on the fifth book in the series called Snowbound, and I'm hoping to, well, I am bringing out this fall. So uh, normally, I try and put out one of these books a year. I have for the last four years, and I'm normally at the stage where I'm, you know, at least second or third draft. Unfortunately, this year I've been delayed. So I'm about halfway through my first draft. I've actually set aside the next few weeks to really nail down the solid first draft. Is that what Up the Creek is part of? Yeah, Up the Creek is the first book in the series, yeah. Ah, okay. And that's been very well received in your native Canada. Well, actually, you know what? The biggest market for the books, even though they're set in a fictional town in rural Saskatchewan, Canada, the biggest market for the books have been the United States. I'm kind of shocked by that. But around Christmas time, it was like the series got discovered and it just kind of took off. And I think about 99% of my sales are into America. So yeah, that's uh, been kind of cool to see. That is nice. I love that. So let me ask you this, Kevin, because I know that we're fellow mimetic theoreticians. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's an awkward Wait, to have to talk about it. I we got to come up with a better name for ourselves. Girardians, I guess. Is yeah, Girardian was probably easier, but yeah. It's easier. It rolls yeah. off the tongue a little. Can you just give us a quick understanding of how you first encountered mimetic theory and actually, like, how does it show up in your books and your films? Well, I kind of stumbled across it when I was working on my documentary Hellbound, which came out in 2012. I had a friend up here in BC who was very much into mimetic theory, and I'd kind of heard about him talking about it. And it wasn't until I went to go and interview Michael Harden, who appears in the film. We have a mutual friend named Brad Jerzak, and he was the one who suggested maybe I talk to Michael in terms of making the film. And I just had this suspicion that mimetic theory had something to say on the topic of hell. And so as I do before I interview anybody, I start to read you know, books and articles of things that people had written. So initially, my introduction was through Michael Harden's book, The Jesus Driven Life, which then led me to read some books by René Girard as well. And it was one of those moments where, you know, it's like uh, you just crack something open that just reveals a completely new world. It was like discovering a key to a world that had always sort of existed alongside our world, but I never knew about it. So really what ended up happening is as I started to discover and learn more about medic theory, immediately my brain just started to apply to so many different things. And it became really a defining way of thinking in terms of the movie Hellbound itself and really in terms of how the movie is structured. And I don't really ever address mimetic theory in the film, but I think anybody who's familiar with mimetic theory will see that it very much informs the structure of the movie. Yeah. Well, we loved it very much here at Raven. And you won the Raven Award in 2013 for Hellbound. Which I was very thankful for. Oh, we were thankful for the film. I mean, the film takes on this idea and challenges the idea of hell. And that, you know, the wicked are going to end up there. And we know who the wicked are. (laughs) It's not me. So I'm just intrigued by why you wanted to make a film like that. Why was that important to you to take on that idea of hell? Well, there's some personal reasons. And then there's some more 
I guess, broader philosophical or theological reasons. But personally, I became a Christian when I was nine years old. I actually had a grandfather who was a minister uh, in something called the United Church of Canada, which is a very liberal denomination. And he had also been a chaplain in World War II. He had landed shortly after D-Day and been through some, you know, the last horrific year of the war when the Germans just refused to surrender. And so, you know, some of the stuff he witnessed, I think just basically ended his belief in God. And he had told my mom many times, you know, I've been close to death many times throughout my life. So don't expect a deathbed conversion out of me, even though he continued to be a minister his whole life, (laughs) because he felt that religion was a good socializing force in society. And And he was a real pillar of the community type guy. So even though he didn't necessarily believe in a personal God, I think he believed that it was good for humans to exist as if they would be held accountable to something higher than themselves. He kind of felt that was a necessary part of society. So that was kind of my background. So I, even though I was raised sort of within the church, I'd never heard anything. I didn't even have a basic working understanding of, you know, what people would call the gospel of who is Jesus. I didn't really understand any of that. So I went to this Bible camp when I was nine and I got hit with the gospel presentation one night before bed. And, you know, I think our counselor had like a hundred percent batting ratio because within that presentation was a threat of hell. It was a very kind and gentle threat of hell, but it was sort of laying out, this is the way the universe works. And, you know, you can either pray this prayer and kind of get in with God or the consequences, you know, are going to be bad. So I did pray that prayer. And I remember coming home that summer. I lived on a farm in Saskatchewan. And I remember standing on my driveway one night, I was supposed to go out and help my family weed in the garden. And I looked at them all out there. And I was struck by this idea that if they didn't come to learn what I had just learned, they were all going to go to hell. And the problem was, I was more afraid of telling them what I had just done than I was about them going to hell, because I knew that they didn't have much use for these evangelicals who had just converted me. And so I was kind of stuck. But the way I look at it, looking back, is that it was like I took in something good, but along with it came a virus. And that virus grew to the point that I think it threatened to overtake the host. And, you know, it's kind of remarkable that a decision that you make when you're nine years old can define the rest of your life. You know, you either can go with it or you can work against it. And that's kind of been my story. And so Hellbound was me finally reaching a point where enough is enough that this horrific idea of a God who would consign perhaps the majority of humans to a form of torment that has no remedial purpose. It is purely done for the sake of God's quote-unquote glory, that there is no good end that can ever come for those who are being tormented. It just seemed to me to be just illogical and horrifying, and it just really offended me at every single level. And so what I wanted to do, I'd kind of been, but at the same time, I was like many Christians, evangelicals who've been raised that to reject this idea is to reject the gospel. So what began to give me a measure of freedom was I was working, I was writing, and I was also editing. And I edited a book by a guy named Brad Jersak, who was a good friend of mine. And it was called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, Hope, Hell, and the New Jerusalem. And what Brad did in that book is he just went systematically through different terms used in the Old Testament and the New Testament for hell, different images of judgment. And then he looked at what are the various interpretive traditions throughout the history of the church. And if you just do that simple thing, define terms, and look how people have defined those terms historically, you come away from this hard and fast binary view of judgment and that sort of thing. And you realize that the church has wrestled with this throughout its history. And and in fact, 
to reject the idea of eternal torment is not to reject the gospel. It's merely just to reject one of many different ways of interpreting these teachings. So that gave me a tremendous feeling of freedom. Because I think one of the big problems with hell is it locks us in. Because hell, you know, it just creates this fear, ultimately a fear of God, that if we happen to believe the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, that's it, game over. And it seems to me, again, that that seems to run counter to the central message of the gospel, which is about alleviating fear. You know, Hebrews says that Jesus took on, you know, flesh because, you know, he wanted to identify with us who all our lives have been held in bondage to the fear of death, basically. And so why would Jesus come along and take our fear of death, times it by eternity, and threaten this horrible punishment? So Hellbound was, again, trying for me personally to come to terms with this and, and to ask the question, could it be possible that all people ultimately will be reconciled to God and each other? That seems to be the best ending to the story. And yet, you know, there's so many people who will tell you, oh, no, that would be a horrible ending to the story. And it's like, but why? You know, why would it be a horrible thing that God could somehow help us overcome our worst hatred of each other, the worst evil that we could commit, that somehow that could not just be undone, because I think that would be too simple, but that we could somehow come out the other side of it in a way that we would all be better as a result. I don't know. It's again, I don't want to be glib about it, thinking about the evil that we can do. But it just seems to be a better ending than the alternative. Well, what would you say to your grandpa who said, well, maybe hell isn't real, but we need it or we won't be good? Well, you know, it's interesting. I remember one time reading Brian McLaren. He said that we need all kinds of churches for all kinds of people. And part of me thinks when I was 19, 20, I needed hell, (laughs) you know, to kind of keep me. It kind of kept me away from certain things, fear of going to hell. and so. I think that knowledge of consequences are important, but I would hope that we could mature. You know, I think that maturity is about moving from a way of life where our behavior is modified from the outside to a way of life where our behavior is self-governing, that, you know, maturity is taking responsibility for yourself as much as you are able and not assigning blame to everyone else and not kind of outsourcing responsibility, but taking it internally. So, I think the need to have somebody standing over you with a stick, it should become less and less of a factor as as we learn and grow. Because we recognize through cause and effect the consequences of our actions, and we should want to choose a world and ways of living that make the world a better place and that make us better people. And so even though, I mean, we're all wounded and we're all, you know, there's all kinds of things going on with us that make that difficult, but hopefully that's at least what we're striving for. Well, and the other thing about hell that I think becomes very appealing, certainly was appealing to me. I grew up as a Catholic and hell and punishment and, you know, sin, very prominent in the way we talk about the choices we're going to make. But one of the things that hell does is help you know that you're doing the right thing. Mm. Like it lays out this sort of program, like here's what you need to do to avoid hell. Mm-hmm. And then you can clearly see that you're on the right path. You're good. Mm-hmm. And then you can easily say who's not on the right path. And I think it gets tied up with this sense of needing to know we're good, like this sort of need for identity, which is a thing mimetic theory highlights that we tend to define. We need something to be against to know who we are. 
Mm-hmm. Does that resonate with what you found as you were exploring why people cling to the idea of hell? Definitely. I think that the idea of eternal torment in hell, the idea that certain people are going to be sequestered forever in hell, it just seems to be a magnification of the way humans function. That to know who we are, we have to know who we aren't. We have to know who our enemy is. In fact, we can't even know who we are until we have an enemy. And that it's finding that enemy and forming a community around our identification of our enemy that really is the foundation of human civilization. And so, at least from a mimetic theory standpoint, and it seems to me that the kingdom of God must be something other than that, not just a magnification of that. That, you know, Jesus becomes a threat to the governing authorities, I think, because he threatens that very way of forming identity by going to the people who typically are the scapegoats and saying that they have value, that they have agency, that, uh, you know, they have personhood and that they aren't just something to be cast off or to be feared. And so, yeah, I think hell, yeah, again, hell is this idea of eternal torment. Yeah, it it really is just a magnification of business as usual. Mm -hmm. It is tied in with this idea of punishment that if you, you know, if you commit the crime, you do the time kind of approach. And as you say, that's very human. And for us to imagine there's another, that God has a different way instead of just projecting the way we do things onto God, it's very radical. It's Well, and I, I think, yeah, and that's where I would say hell, like violence is a failure of the imagination. Like my background, like in terms of some of my university is in young offenders and how young offenders are processed through the justice system. That's, you know, what one of my bachelor's degrees is in. And I spent some time working in some facilities that dealt with young offenders. And, you know, in that sort of field, you know, when you look at trying to deal with crime, punishment, or we'll say society's response to crime has a whole bunch of different goals. You know, one might be retribution, but I would say that's the lowest way to respond to a crime. I mean, obviously, what we ultimately want to do with an offender is we want them to see the error of their ways. We want them to repent, which means to turn away from them and to be restored to society. So ultimately, we want, and the highest thing that could ever happen, and we read about these stories occasionally, is an offender is reconciled with the victim of their crime, or maybe the family members of the victim if the victim is no longer alive. And we read those stories and we're just blown away by how could somebody, you know, I was just listening again. I love Hamilton, the musical, listening to It's Quiet Uptown and how Hamilton's wife, I mean, there's that point in the lyric in the song, it almost makes me cry when look at this amazing thing. She forgives him for betraying her. She forgives, Hamilton's wife forgives him for, you know, willingly sending his son off to his death in a duel. And we look at those stories as just the highest achievement of humanity. So why couldn't we imagine that that would be God's ultimate purpose? Because imagine a parent punishing a child or us punishing offenders in a way that just merely satisfies us, but does nothing for the offender. That seems to be, you know, we kind of put people in prison for doing that sort of thing. (laughs) Like, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be the greatest good that we could imagine God achieving in the universe. At least I can't see how that could be the greatest good. Well put. So what is your relationship with God like right now? Well, you should probably ask God that question. (laughs) Yeah, good good point. (laughs) 
you know, it's really hard for me to define. I mean, I think that I've pretty much turned that all over to God, you know, because I, it's something I just, yeah, it's a very difficult question for me to answer, to be honest. I mean, it's, I think an openness and kind of a hope that there's a deep secret underlining the universe that is going to blow me away because any question I could frame is completely the wrong question. And that there's something going on so much deeper that we can imagine that, you know, and for me, it's about just putting trust in that because I've just given up trying to define God. I've given up trying to define almost anything in that regard. And yeah, like I said, I've just kind of put it in God's hands. It's faith in things unseen, I suppose. It it really is. I mean, because it's, uh, and maybe you call it apophatic in terms of, I just feel like I can define the negative space around God, but I, you know, I can't really do much more than that. But yet sort of thinking just that, and again, it could be the way things are, but it's hard to imagine that, you know, like Ernest Becker says, that we could be these creatures that form meaning and identity, and yet we're here for just a whisper of time and and then we're gone and and everything is meaningless then. I would just hope that everything's not meaningless and that some sort of truth of what the way the universe is has actually filtered down to us in, in say, the person of Christ and the story of the gospel that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, we can pin some faith on that. I'm glad you can't put words around it because it seems once you can grasp hold of it too tightly, grasp hold of God or any idea of what's beyond us, you kind of lose it. It slips through your fingers, even Mm -hmm. as you're trying to hold on to it. And in a way, that's sort of what hell is, is trying to grasp onto that we know who God is. Mm -hmm. We know what God thinks. (laughs) And it's, you know, when you do that, you do lose God, I think, in the process. Yeah. And I think, you know, the ancient Jews were very aware of that. And, you know, to the point they wouldn't even speak God's name. There was no graven Mm -hmm. image of God because, I think that that's a recognition that change is the only constant in a sense. And so that we can't become too beholden to an image of God because that image is always going to be a product of circumstances. And so when circumstances change, if we're so invested in image of God, we're going to cling to that in defiance of our circumstances. And then reality is going to become our enemy. And I think that's kind of the definition of a fundamentalist, you know, where the real world is just untenable because it just doesn't match these ideas anymore. And we get angry when that happens. Why won't the world conform to the way I see it? Right. And, Cause then you have to rethink yourself. I mean, you had to sort of then re, you know, your everything you think you knew is called into question. It's not a happy place. No. Most of us don't tolerate ambiguities like that very well. No, because it's stressful. There's certain things you just want to put on autopilot. And when, all of a sudden those things can't be on autopilot anymore. It just takes a lot out of us. And so uh, we try and minimize those types of interferences, I think. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that's going on in the world we live in right now. But And I want to talk about that, but I do want to just finish this conversation up a little bit and ask you if, you know, if church is meaningful for you today, do you go to church? Do you find any nourishment from going to church? We don't actually go to church right now, and we haven't for several years. Yeah, I've always had a bit of a, I don't know, trouble finding my place. I'm probably like my mom that way. We ask too many questions, so it's hard to kind of settle in. You know, making Hellbound was kind of painful in that 
I sort of got read the riot act by one of the priests. I was attending an Anglican church at the time and sort of got read the riot act by the priest saying that, you know, they would have to publicly distance themselves from me if I pursued. I was actually going to do a next film about Rene Girard and mimetic theory. They said, especially if you do that, we're going to have to, you know, basically publicly distance ourselves from you. And so I just sort of walked away and it was difficult for our whole family in that regard. But I don't necessarily have a bitterness against the church, but I have a hard time finding my place within a local church body. I think, though, I miss that. I mean, I do miss, you know, some of my best times in church were as a young person being involved in a youth group. And, you know, even as a young adult, I went to a Bible college. I was attending a vineyard church and we had a a community, you know, that was where we're all sort of on the same page. And I think that's something that is so hard today is to find a group of people whose beliefs and values overlap to the point that you can actually really build community because, I don't know, it just seems everything's changing so much. And I'm very hesitant to throw my hat in with a particular group because Mm -hmm. it just feels then I've chosen a side or something. And I can't feel... I don't know, I'm too much of a smorgasbord, uh, you know, buffet person where there's a lot of things I want to be imbibing from, not just one particular tradition. And so I know you can be within a tradition and feed from other traditions, but I guess, yeah, we just haven't really found that place for ourselves. No, I think you're pointing out big questions that those of us who, you know, maybe live inside or outside the church, but are asking what's the future of what does a church community look like? And how do we form community? And I think being able to tolerate questions and a multiplicity of attitudes within the community is going to be really critical, I think. Well, and I think the forms think church takes too. Like when I think about it, to be honest, my faith community exists on Facebook. I mean, that is such a significant platform for me. And that's where I interact with people about these types of issues and Mm -hmm. engage in debate and I learn things. And, you know, I feel like that's where I'm finding, I guess, that thing. And so maybe I'm not finding it in a local physical body, but I am finding it. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad you're having positive community on Facebook. That seems rare these days. (laughs) (laughs) It's increasingly rare, I think. But, but, you know, there is that it's a great way of finding your tribe. Yeah, and one that has a little bit of fluid boundaries or porous boundaries so that, as again, you don't end up defining yourself against someone else's tribe. You know, that's always the risk. It's what we always have to be so self-aware, you know, and always asking ourselves those questions. Yeah, I agree. Where does my identity come from? And who do I need to keep in the bad place <laughs> to know that I'm good? It's just, it's ongoing. In, yes. You know, you never arrive. But that's okay. That's why there's writers and filmmakers to keep reminding us yeah. <laughs> to ask those questions, yeah. right? Well, and I want to talk about your latest release, JES USA, which was released, unfortunately, right around the time the pandemic was hitting the U.S., you had a release date, I think it was the end of February or yeah. beginning of March, something like that. But we were lucky to be able to watch it at the Collaborators Conference. And it is an amazing documentary that weirdly feels very timely right now, as if you kind of knew what was going to be going on with this movement for racial justice and then the role that 
violence is now taking or overtaking a lot of the legitimate calls for change that are happening in the U.S. But tell us a little bit about what that documentary is about, what you set out to do, and why you wanted to make it. Mm -hmm. Well, I look at JSUSA as a quasi-sequel to Hellbound in that it it takes this question of violence and brings it maybe instead of a divine level down to more of a human level. So Hellbound's looking at hell as really the ultimate form of divine violence, whereas JSUSA is looking at how did we as a church, how did Christians become complicit with the violence of the state? Because this violence is the organizing principle of the world. You know, Heraclitus says, you know, that's what, you know, going back to Greek philosophers, like that's really, you know, saying that fire is the thing that defines us. In the film, the way Brian Zahn puts it is uh, the lines on a map tell a bloody tale. And I think that's a great way of helping us understand how we organize ourselves is through violence. And somehow along the way, the church became complicit in this. And so that's why the title of the film combines the word Jesus and the abbreviation USA, because in many people's minds, you know, J-E-S-U-S-A is really, it's this, what you get when you combine the country with the God, you get this sort of, this monstrosity, this thing that you can't really tell where one word ends and the other begins. And so how did the church become complicit in violence? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And how do we extricate ourselves from it? So the film, and again, we're not, necessarily picking on America. America is really coming out of the Cold War, the only superpower standing. So it seems to be the best way to examine this relationship between church and state in the present. But the situation between the church and the governing authorities in America is really no different than it's always been wherever the church has existed in a country, is that somehow you have to form a relationship. And the state will subvert anything it can to its own ends, including and especially religion. And history definitely bears that out. So yeah, I just wanted to look at that in the film and try and explore that from a perspective of mimetic theory without really talking about mimetic theory, just to help people see a practical application of it and to show that there's really no relationship between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God in terms of their basic organizing principles, that the kingdom of God is based on you know Jesus first of all and then the followers of Jesus willingly putting themselves on the altar and sacrificing themselves for the good of the community whereas you know the kingdom of the world is based on us finding an enemy and putting them on the altar for the sake of the community i think the best way to think about it is the great line out of star trek 2 the wrath of khan where spock says the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one or the few that sounds like a really noble thing to say when you're sacrificing yourself as Spock was in that film. And he recognized that his needs weren't as important as the needs of the entire enterprise. But that comes across completely different when it's the group saying it to the individual. And I think that's a good way of understanding the difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's who gets to decide who's being sacrificed. (laughs) Right. For the good of the many. And, you know, you would like to be asked... You know, and not volunteered for the job. And I think that's, there's so much to talk about here. But one of the things you take on is this image of Jesus as someone who would take up arms to defend the defenseless. And you open the movie with a group of that people who are identifying with Christ, but in a way is justifying their 
use of violence against what do they call themselves? Are they the wolves or they're defending people against they're, the wolves? What is the, it? They divide the world into three types of people. There's sheep, which is almost everybody. There's wolves, which are the few bad apples. And then there's sheepdogs, which is what they believe themselves to be. So we, yeah, we interview some guys who are associated with a group called Sheepdog Seminars. And so these folks, one of them is a former army ranger. The other is a former cop, Dallas, Texas. And the other guy's a security expert. And another one's actually a pastor. So there's four of them. But what they're keying in on is a couple of things. Number one is they believe that as leaders, they are shepherds. And one of the jobs of a shepherd is to protect the flock. And so a shepherd would have a staff or as one of the guys in the film puts it, you know, maybe a rod of iron and they would interpret that to be a gun, but it would be irresponsible for a shepherd not to protect the sheep. So there's a paternal or a pastoral desire to protect. So it's a noble thing that these guys want to do. And, and they would never think of violence as the first means of doing that, but they definitely think it would be wrong not to reserve violence as, you know, at least a last line of defense against anyone who would want to harm the flock. And so I think one of the things that comes out of that is that underlying that belief is this idea that the greatest possible good is self-preservation. So that is the number one operating principle. And again, self-preservation is not the primary operating principle of the gospel. Jesus said, anyone who would follow me has to take up their cross, which is the means of their own execution, and follow me. So basically, following Jesus means basically, probably dying a violent death at the hands of someone else. That is what it means to follow Jesus. And so it seems like, again, we have you know, some fundamental values running at odds with each other. And that's not mm -hmm. to say I want to die a violent death at the hands of someone else. Nobody does, but that's ultimately what it may mean to follow Jesus so that self-preservation isn't the highest good. There's this other sense too that comes out is that, you know, we are, as followers of Jesus, we are kings and queens. And so therefore we have the rights of kings and queens, and that means to own property and then to defend that property. So that's the view of at least one of the person in the film. So this idea that Christians should use violence in some situations don't come from wanting to do something evil, but wanting to protect something good. Yeah. So I think that's an important distinction. I think you did almost too good a job of presenting <laughs> them sympathetically. I'm like, okay, Kevin, you're spending a lot of time with this, but I think you were right to, to make that point. It's not like these are evil people that we can be against and know that we're the good guys if we disagree with them. And I think being able to see their motivation, that we can empathize with the motivation, was a great way to open up the conversation. So we can't just dismiss them. Right. But how do you defend the sheep? What's the best way to protect one another? And it, you do an excellent job of going through scripture and using some wonderful scholarship to present what you would say, as you've been saying, is the way the kingdom would operate if the kingdom had arrived already. Right. And I think the best way to do that is to love your enemy. Because if you can love your enemy out of existence in terms of eventually when enough bodies start to pile up, you must believe that your enemy has a conscience, that your enemy is a human being. And even the worst tyrant in the world, there's a point at which 
they can come to their senses. Mm-hmm. But that can't happen if the only thing you're ever bringing against them is what they're dishing out against you. The only way that they can be brought to a point of revelation is to encounter someone who, like Jesus, who turns the other cheek, who refuses to return evil for evil, because all these examples that Jesus gives us, some practical examples he gives at least his first listeners, those are all meant to stymie the person who's bringing violence against the individual because it forces them to reflect on their own actions. And it's so, by treating our enemies as enemies, as something to be overcome, something to be defeated, something to run from, we're not treating them as people who are in desperate need of healing and who are in desperate need of seeing a new and better way of engaging with the world. And so I think the best way to protect the flock ultimately is to love our enemies. Mm -hmm. That may mean that some of us, the first early adopters, are going to die because that is, you know, eventually, you know, that's, think about the earliest Christians, you know, I mean, they were sacrificed hundreds, possibly thousands before finally the Roman Empire said enough. Mm -hmm. You know, the emperors said enough that they realized that something had to change. They were witness to something that was so persistent that they finally had to stop and listen. What on earth are these people about? They just will not go with the program, (laughs) you know, and that eventually transformed things. Now, it's not like the Roman Empire became a Christian empire by any means, but as David Bentley Hart says in the film, Christianity did you know, have a net positive effect on the empire in terms of some of its most grievous things that it did. Now, the church very quickly took on the trappings of empire as well, and there's all kinds of horrible things that the church has done throughout history. But there's always, within that group, there's always sort of like, you know, a witness, a minority of people who who are holding on to this idea that we can change the machine. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., he's one of my heroes because he just He had that just stubborn persistence that he refused to bring evil against evil. And he recognized that the minute he did, it would all be over because he would prove to his enemies that he was everything they believed him to be. And that's, again, why I think, you know, Jesus is saying, if somebody strikes you in the cheek, don't strike them back, turn your other cheek. Because the minute you hit them back, you just justify the violence they brought against you. Exactly. Well, and I think this, and the title of the film, JESUSA, calls into question this, can you be a follower of Jesus and a patriot? You know, what does it mean to be an American who's following Jesus? And that's a good question. Well, as, and again, as Greg Boyd says in the film, is that he doesn't see himself as a citizen of any country. He says, we're like diplomats. We are like, you know, we're people who are in an embassy from another country. And so that, you know, our highest allegiance has to be to that, to something greater than any flag, because the flags will always represent my way against yours. And so, yeah, it's not a nice thing to hear as an American, but you know, what could be higher than the flag, you know, but the answer is God. And I think even the founders of America, even though I wouldn't necessarily call, you know, many of them Christians, they would recognize even, you know, in the declaration that what gives people, you know, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's not the king, you know, it's not the crown. It's what they believe to be an authority higher than humanity. Again, I don't want to get into a whole talk about rights and all that sort of stuff. I don't necessarily even believe in that. But the idea that there is something that transcends humanity 
mm-hmm. that, and the good thing is then that thing can unite us that can transcend all these artificial divisions we've created. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, in the movement now to address systemic racism that's going through the United States and has actually become global since mm-hmm. the murder of George Floyd, these sorts of protests are taking place around the world. I mean, this is one of the things that I'm seeing is that people are saying the best way to be a citizen is to call your government or these powers and principalities to account and stand up to systemic problems. So I'm wondering, you know, what are you seeing from your perch north of the U.S.? But, you know, because as you and I are talking here, we're in the, it's the end of July and the protests, you know, the government now is sending in unmarked vehicles and unlabeled soldiers and people are responding with militias and everyone's blaming everybody else for the violence that's going on. And meanwhile, people are going, but wait, why were we protesting in the first place? What are we trying to accomplish? And so I'm wondering, what are you seeing? Where are you seeing good things happening? Where are things we need to be cautious about, maybe change direction a little bit? Well, to be honest, I'm a little bit disturbed by what I'm seeing. And it seems to me similar in some ways to the Me Too and the Time's Up movements in that what we have is, uh, and I want to be as respectful as I can, but I would say we have a mob, which means a crowd, both virtual and physical, that has identified some scapegoats and is going after them. I mean, I think that's a simple explanation of what we're witnessing. Now, that's not to say that terrible things haven't happened. I mean, I find it took me a while to watch the whole video of George Floyd being killed. And I was furious after I watched it and just disturbed. I mean, it was horrifying. But at the same time, I was kind of mystified because I can't remember the name of the police officer who was kneeling on his neck. But the fact that he did that, knowing full well he was being filmed and being constant, I just really respect the young African-American guy who would not let up on catcalling him to get off George's neck, knowing that he could be the next one on the ground. But the fact that he did it with impunity tells me that in no way did he think he would find himself in prison within weeks facing charges of murder that it seemed like standard operating procedure for him. So we don't get to a point where a cop can kneel on a black guy's neck for eight, almost nine minutes with impunity because something went wrong at the top. It's not just the people at the top who created this situation. Like, so I think that a lot of what we're seeing is us absolving ourselves of responsibility by going after figures in authority, by going after the police, who we just loved after 9-11. I mean, the you know near worship of first responders after 9-11 was an incredible thing to see. Now, cops can't get served in restaurants. What an amazing turnabout in not even 20 years. And so I think that it's us, again, that's a human tendency. When we see a horrific thing, We want to find somebody to blame and we want to try and fix the problem. So we'll grab the thing that feels like it's most readily at hand. But, you know, we can very easily be tricked into thinking that we stumbled across the moral high ground and we now occupy it. And so that now gives us license to start pointing the finger and to going after people. And in our zeal to do good, we can actually become something horrifying. And so I'm kind of disturbed about that aspect of things. And also the fact that there doesn't seem to be any clearly definable leadership 
you know, even something like Black Lives Matter, there's a slogan and there's an organization and there's sort of this sensibility that black people, I mean, I think that needs to be expanded to all people of color who are being profiled, that their lives matter and that their lives are being threatened in ways that other people aren't, you know, but who, you know, there's what we're missing in all this is a Martin Luther King Jr., somebody who can step forward and who can define some goals beyond maybe just removing some symbols, you know, getting Aunt Jemima off the syrup bottle. That's great. I mean, I learned a lot actually by that whole thing. But ultimately, you know, as somebody pointed out, the bigger problem is what's in the bottle and the fact that it tends to be poor people of color who are consuming it and getting diabetes and all other kinds of problems because that's all they can afford. And so that's a much bigger issue than who's on the bottle in a sense, because people are literally dying because of what's in the bottle. So in our zeal to do good, sometimes we can cause even bigger problems if all we're doing is basically forming a mob and going after an enemy. You know, another thing that was pointed out was people of color. I just was reading the same thing today about Hispanic Americans that I think they make up uh, 36% of the population in California, but they make up around 52% of those who are suffering from COVID-19 in the state. So people of color are more apt to be suffering from COVID-19 due to various circumstances, and yet people were forming large physical groups of people speaking on behalf of black people in the states, where their very act of coming together in those groups could actually form a physical threat to black people. So, But again, we get so caught up in wanting to go after those we hold to be responsible that you know we kind of lose sight of maybe the uh, unintended consequences of our actions. And this isn't to say that police training and police culture does not need to be reformed, but you know, you don't get a cop who's willing to kneel on the neck of a guy until he's dead. You know, you can't, uh, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a village to raise a guy like that. And we are all part of that village. So as I felt during the me too campaign, I think it's great that a lot of bad actors were removed from positions of authority and no longer able to offend. But at the same time, we have to be going through a moment of deep introspection or nothing will change. All we're going to do is just move on to the next scapegoat and it will just go on and on and on. And we're just going to become the very thing that we're trying to hate because we've been given license now to scapegoat cops. Mm Mm-hmm. And think about the average police officer, I mean, who has to say goodbye to his wife and kids or her husband and family or whoever their, you know, significant people are and go out on patrol and pull somebody over on the freeway, not knowing what on earth they're going to encounter when they walk up to the vehicle. And now they also know that everybody hates them, (laughs) even though they probably took that job for very noble reasons. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. So I find myself kind of disturbed. So hope. Where's their hope in this? I see hope in the fact that, you know, social media in a large sense, I think it's really getting hammered lately, but it does at least provide us a real time opportunity to have important discussions with a wide variety of people. And, you know, I always say I learn the most from the people I disagree with the most, and it kind of makes me angry. But I think it's a good thing that we have more platforms than we did to voice our concerns and the fact that governments and companies can be responsive in real time, that things really can change. And that, uh, like for instance, and that we're all being made aware of things that we tacitly accepted that we weren't aware of. So say 
I heard that you can no longer use the term master bedroom when you're promoting real estate in Texas. And it never occurred to me why a master bedroom was called a master bedroom. And once it hit me, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, how many other things are embedded in our culture that we never think about? And that, I think that's a good thing to have us to reflect on that. I mean, that's a trivial example, but I think it was the kind of wake up call that made me go, wow. And also, I mean, this whole discussion of privilege and how that factors into things. I mean, I'm a white male and, you know, I'm one of the most privileged people in the world. And yet I was raised in a multiracial family. I had two siblings who were what you would call Native American, what we call Aboriginal up here. And it's interesting that we kind of were treated as outcasts or even as racist. The odd thing was by having these kids, we were treated even by some people in our family. They were very upset with us for having adopting these kids. And I remember even, you know, a friend of mine coming up to me in elementary school saying, don't you just hate your brother? because he's native. I'm like, no, I could tell he did. And there was a real strong racism. But at the same time, because we ended up taking these kids in at a time when what was happening in Canada was native kids were being taken off the reserves and oftentimes put in white homes, we were viewed later as racists or part of a racist enterprise for trying to provide a home for kids. My mom purposely chose to adopt kids who no one else wanted because of physical or emotional, like my sister had cerebral palsy and my brother, I mean, both of them came from backgrounds where they were severely neglected and abused. And so my mom and had major behavior problems. So my mom took them in for all the best of intentions only to be looked upon later as somebody who was part of a racist enterprise. So I'm a privileged white male, but I know what it's like. I have scars on my knuckles from punching people out in high school who were bullying my brother because he was native. And I kind of caught, you know, the, some of that, that racism myself. And so I know what it's like to be the object of that. And yet I find it frustrating sometimes because I feel like I can't, I'm not allowed to speak into certain situations because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. And yet when I feel that frustration, I know what it's, it helps me understand what it's like for African-Americans to be denied certain things, to be looked at in a certain way, purely because of the color of their skin. I want to scream, I'm an individual. I know what it's like to be a victim, as well as somebody who receives privilege just because of my genetics. But I'm more complicated than the color of my skin. I want to yell that sometimes. But again, it's a wake-up call to me to go, wow, yeah, imagine how, you know, the black guy, like the pastor in our film who gets pulled over because he's a black guy driving a car feels. How much does he want to yell that in the face of somebody who's holding a gun? And so it helps me calm down and go, you know, and that makes me go, we have a lot in common with people of color. And, and that's where, you know, I, I, I kind of got a kick out of Sam Harris, who I listen to his podcast all the time. He said, you know, he thinks the solution to our racial problems is not to make race the most important thing but to make it the least important thing. And he says, I want it to be like hair color. He says, how many blondes got into Harvard last year? (laughs) How many redheads? How many brunettes? He goes, nobody knows because nobody cares because it doesn't matter. And yet I really think that's a great goal. Just like Martin Luther King Jr. says, you know, we should be judging people by the, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But for people whose skin color makes the most it's the most important thing right now. It has to be the most important thing right now until we kind of somehow get past that being the most important thing. 
So I guess that's maybe when I think about hope is that I feel like I've gained a measure of self-awareness as I've wrestled against the things about these protests that make me angry. I realize that what I'm coming up against is some of the anger that's driving the protests and I identify with it. Mm-hmm. But I hope that we can all move past it and recognize that, you know, there's, there's so much more to us than just these categories that we keep finding ourselves in. Yes. And I think that one of the things that I wonder about is, is there a role for the church to play for Christians to play in this? Because I think as, you know, we started talking about the difference between this kingdom and the kingdom of God is that we look past the differences that don't matter to see the uniqueness of the person right in front of us. And I'm hoping that the resources within the Judeo-Christian tradition and other religious traditions, you know, I've been talking to people doing interfaith dialogue and saying that there's so much within all of these wonderful religious traditions that are pointing to the unity, to the that we're all siblings. Mm-hmm. And how do we have that be the baseline, you know, from which we engage with one another? I don't know how we get there, except that we keep at it. Yeah. And I think, you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition does have incredible resources to help us through this. As Dwight Ford the African-American pastor in, uh, in JSUSA points out is that, I mean, here's a guy who served his country as a Marine in combat and uh, now serves his country as a pastor who's very much engaged in social reform, you know, in his community, and yet who is consistently profiled by the police, but who just absolutely refuses to respond in kind. He refuses to dehumanize the police officer who is dehumanizing him. Instead, he invites that officer to his church and invites him to become part of his community. And I think that is the hope that we have. And that's the, you know, what Jesus is trying to show us is that if we refuse to respond in kind to the violence brought against us, eventually we can transform the person sitting across from us. We can transform our community. And, and it's not something that can happen in, in big sweeping ways. Every individual has to come to that awareness. And so you know, it's very tempting for us to look at the big issue all the time. I'm a Canadian, but I'm still obsessed with what is going to happen in November, you know, in America, as if that's going to actually change things, you know, because change ultimately is going to happen, you know, one individual at a time. It it sounds trite and it sounds simplistic, but ultimately it has to. And that's where, you know, again, I looked at somebody even like uh, Thomas Merton, who you know, it's such a shame he couldn't have lived longer because it just felt like he was just getting to, you know, the most interesting stage of his life in terms of his exploration of, of interfaith dialogue. And, and, you know, what he found is as he grew more and more into the mystic tradition, he found that he had less in common with people, I think, within his own Catholic faith and more in common with the mystics of other traditions because they were all kind of arriving at the same place. And I think that this turn toward mindfulness, it could be seen as a pop culture phenomenon, but I think at its best, it's recognizing that, you know, that there's a deeper consciousness in the universe and we all kind of provide a different window into it. And each one of those windows is important. You know, like Paul talks about the body, uses the image of the body in 1 Corinthians and every part of the body is important. And you could say that within the church, but I think you need to say that within humanity. 
or however big you want to draw that circle is that, you know, you can't shrink the circle without losing something vitally important. And that hopefully what we're constantly trying to do is broaden that circle and to make it wider so that those who are inside the circle, you know, eventually there's nobody and nothing outside of it. And, you know, I mean, that's the goal, but yeah, it's a tough thing to overcome these, you know, (laughs) these clench things that cause us to clench our fists all the time. Right. But you're right to point out that it's the task of each individual to take on and that makes it actionable. You know, as we think about these big problems, the best thing to do, what's the expression is think globally, act locally, right? Right. Do what you can and know that you're contributing to the building up of the kingdom. So I, Kevin, I want to thank you so much for this time that you spent with us. It's been a wonderful conversation and I wish you all the best with getting that draft finished. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. So many of us grew up with the threat of hell looming as a reality. I was raised Catholic and back then purgatory, a time of temporary torment we all had to go through was a real thing. When my grandpa died, I felt awful that he was in that terrible place and I prayed prayers of intercession for him because we were taught that if we prayed enough, we could shorten his sentence. The thought of his suffering certainly kept me devoted to a regular prayer practice. Kevin rightly pointed out that sometimes we need to be motivated by the threat of punishment to keep us on the straight and narrow, especially during our teen and young adult years when we can be reckless and undisciplined. But growing up means that we awaken to the natural consequences of our behaviors. We don't need to believe in hell to discover that we can make our own hell on earth by acting out of self-interest, greed, fear, and a belief in redemptive violence. Maturity means that we internalize those lessons so well that the idea of hell seems superfluous and a little bit ridiculous. Because do we really think that the God who took human form to reveal his boundless love and mercy could run out of patience with us? Does God give us a time limit on our repentance, like a parent at her wit's end threatening a time out if we don't clean up our rooms in five minutes? Many Christian traditions can't quite find a way to answer a full stop no to those questions. So they develop some convoluted theologies to make God seem less hell-bent on punishing us. My sister is a Jehovah's Witness, and she explains their elaborate understanding of the Last Judgment not as God coming to punish us, but as God taking thousands of years to make his love so obvious that we will all repent and be saved. If God's plan works out, she tells me, then hell will be empty. She might be right at least about the part of just how hard it is for us to see it's not God who delights in punishment, but us. It's God who loves us beyond measure and who has a wonderful end game in mind. As Kevin says, isn't it reasonable to believe that what God wants is the reconciliation of humanity to ourselves and to God? That's what I'm praying for. Thanks so much for listening to The Collaborators Podcast a production of the Raven Foundation, where we offer a welcoming community to anyone disillusioned with organized religion, but who has not given up on God or world at peace. 
And many thanks to this episode's sponsors, The Porch, an online magazine for slow conversation about beautiful and difficult things, and the New Story Festival, seeking courageous action for the common good. And please sign up for The Olive Branch, Raven's weekly newsletter, to keep up with our blog posts, events, videos, and podcast series. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your collaboration as we work for the flourishing of nonviolent Christianity as a peaceful presence in a world of rivalry.